Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off this week. Sarah Seidner is out of the storm zone and already laughing because it's Sarah Seidner. It means we're going to have a fun and good day. But let's get started with five things to know for this Thursday, August 31st. North Carolina now getting pummeled by heavy rains from Idalia. The tropical storm is still packing a punch with 60 mile per hour winds after leaving a path of devastation in Florida. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell freezes up in front of reporters again. It's the second time this has happened this summer, raising questions about both his health and his political future. And the New York Attorney General says Donald Trump inflated his wealth by as much as $2.2 billion in a single year. Now, this is part of the civil fraud lawsuit against the former president, his adult sons, and the Trump Organization. Also, a federal judge says Rudy Giuliani is liable for defaming two Georgia election workers in his effort to overturn the results of the 2020 election. This is the first major legal judgment against Trump's former attorney and an unsparing one at that after he failed to hand over crucial evidence in the case. And Phil, I need you to pay attention to this one because it is kickoff time for college football. It's those Florida Gators. We're not mentioning the other team here this morning, okay? Not today, my friend. Florida Gators versus someone, go Gators, but this will be the last season from some storied rivalries as teams shift conferences to cash in. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, good morning, everyone. We are going to get to college football most certainly uh, in the hours ahead. But before we get to our storm coverage, where things stand right now and what is now tropical storm, Idalia, I want to ask you, you were there yesterday throughout the course of the day, overnight and into the morning throughout the day. Uh, what was your sense of the preparation and the devastation? Look, um, a lot of people in Florida, because they're used to having these storms come through, there are too many people who say, you know what? I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to. This isn't going to be that bad. We've been through this before. But because of where this storm went, they've not been through this before because this is a larger storm than they've seen in 120 something years. In the Big Bend region. In the Big Bend region. And so what my biggest concern was, was that there would be people that thought we've been through this and then they get stuck. And that did happen quite often. Yeah, we're still kind of seeing the after effects down in Florida. But this morning, Adalia, now a tropical storm, cutting a destructive path path across parts of the southeast. It is now moving slowly north along the Carolina coast. The storm is losing strength, but still bringing heavy rain, flash floods, and tornado threats to the Carolinas. Udalia slammed into Florida's Big Bend region as a Category 3 hurricane, the strongest storm to hit that region in at least 125 years. Then it rolled over Georgia as a Category 1 storm, unleashing torrential rains and flooding. Homes destroyed, entire communities flooded in, Many roads are still impassable this morning. A major cleanup is in store for Florida's West Coast. Many residents are visibly in shock after watching their livelihoods, their neighborhoods, and their homes washed away. Try not to get emotional, but, you know, this is a beautiful town. The people are wonderful, and I hate seeing my my people go through something like this. It is truly, really, really hard to to watch that happen and to experience it. We have team coverage with CNN's Carlos Suarez. He is live in Tampa, Florida. But first to Diane Gallagher in North Carolina, where Idalia is moving off the coast, but still you're seeing the effects of that. What's going on this morning? 
You know, Sarah, we're starting to experience some more of those wind gusts this morning. Uh, intermittently, it rained throughout the night. A flash flood warning expiring uh, this morning for the southeastern part of North Carolina. And look, you can kind of see the reeds here being pushed down by the wind. We're looking at sustained winds of more than 20 miles per hour at this point here in Wilmington, where I am, and other parts of southeastern North Carolina. We're seeing gusts up to about 45 miles per hour as tropical storm Idalia moves uh, its way out into the ocean, uh, away from land. Now, look, we did have some flooding in the area, especially overnight. This rain coinciding along with that storm surge and the king tide. Most of the flooding did happen in what officials tell me are trouble areas that tend to flood anyway. Here in downtown Wilmington, there was some flooding. Carolina Beach, also in Southport, North Carolina. Much of that water has since receded. But the concern this morning is continued rain that is expected to pick up some and these winds that are going to go throughout the morning in into the early afternoon, we could continue to look at these high winds. So in Wilmington, they have delayed all public transportation through the morning, canceled it. Schools are also either virtual or completely canceled in the southeastern region of North Carolina today. And we're looking at offices and stuff, asking people just to stay home this morning. Officials do expect Sarah and Phil the worst of it today to be in about an hour or so. And so again, asking people to stay home at least for the morning. Well, we are sorry that we have stuck you out there with your team, but thank you so much for being there, and we'll check in with you in the next hour when things are at their height. Diane Gallagher, appreciate you. Now to Carlos Suarez in Tampa, Florida. Uh, Carlos, what are you seeing there in the aftermath? We were watching Derek Van Dam throughout the course of the day yesterday. Look at the storm surge, the flooding. Where are things now? Well, Phil and Sarah, good morning. So the cleanup effort is well underway here in Hillsborough County. The lone evacuation order out here uh, was lifted yesterday, and the bridges that connect the Tampa Bay area out to Clearwater and St. Pete have reopened. Now, to the north of us, it is a very different situation. Folks there are still dealing with significant flooding up in Pasco County. Thousands of homes have been damaged by all of that water, and at least 150 people had to be rescued from their homes. Hurricane Idalia barreled through Florida Wednesday, making landfall near Keaton Beach. Uh, my house okay. is down at Keaton. Okay. I don't know if it's there or not, but this right here, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to have a house to go home to. The eye of the storm ripped through Florida's Big Bend region with maximum sustained winds of 125 miles per hour. Resulting in a once in a century weather event. It was bad. It was heavy, heavy, heavy winds. Um, worst I've ever been in. The Category 3 storm left homes demolished and streets flooded. We clearly have uh, significant damage throughout the Big Bend region. This family in Perry, Florida, watched as trees fell directly on their home. Oh my gosh. No! It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Up and down Florida's west coast, record-breaking storm surge occurred. In Citrus County, Crystal River left devastated by floodwaters. People are actually really going strong, and, and we are, an entire city of Crystal River is in a flood zone, so we, we have no choice but to, to move to higher ground. Further south along the coast in Hudson Beach, crews rescued residents by boat as the floodwaters came rushing into their homes. I can't believe this. I've never seen nothing like it. This family rescued but heartbroken to leave everything behind. 
and it just came in before we can get out, man, like so quick. We're trying to get in the truck and it's up to the barely able to get the doors open. In Pasco County, around 150 residents were rescued from flooded neighborhoods. This home caught fire in the midst of the floodwaters. Michael Bobbitt from Cedar Key, Florida, says he stayed behind to weather the storm. These are all little old school Florida villas and they were just picked up and carried into the Gulf. So that was heartbreaking to see. One resident on Anna Maria Island posted this video of her swimming through floodwaters at four in the morning. Golf carts, cars were flooded, the trailer homes. I mean, it was up to our knees, our waist. We're riding bikes through it, so it got pretty high. Ivalia then traveled north through Georgia into South Carolina, where the storm surge reached nine feet in Charleston, according to the National Weather Service, leaving roadways throughout the state treacherous. This car in Goose Creek, South Carolina, flipped over in the middle of the road. And we spent the day yesterday out in Pinellas County, just to the west of where we are right now in Tampa Bay. The attention there really shifted from all of the flooding, right? We were talking about anywhere between uh, three to five feet of it. Uh, the folks that came out to take a look at that uh, quickly realized uh, that several sailboats had washed up ashore along uh, the uh, city of Gulfport there. We're told uh, that the storm surge uh, caused one of the sailboats to break free, which took out two other sailboats. The owners of all those three sailboats now have to figure out exactly how they're going to get their boats back out uh, into the Tampa Bay area. As for the power outages across the state of Florida, guys, we're looking at about 140,000 homes and businesses that are waking up in the dark. Guys? The, rec the recovery effort underway, but a ton of work to come. Carlos Suarez, please keep us updated throughout the morning. Thank you. All right, this morning, there are some new questions about Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's health after he appeared to freeze again Wednesday while he was speaking to reporters. Senator, you're up for election in three short years. What are your thoughts on this Sorry, I had a hard time hearing you. That's okay. What are your thoughts on running for re-election in 2026? What are my thoughts about what? Running for re-election in 2026. Oh. That's uh, <clears throat> Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. It's unsettling to watch, but even more so because this incident is similar to one in the Capitol last month when McConnell also abruptly stopped speaking and needed help from the people around him. Now his office says he will consult a physician as a, quote, prudential measure. CNN's Melanie Zanona joins us now. Uh, Mel, I think the big question, one, in talking to Republican aides, Republican senators last night, there's obviously a lot of concern. Uh, the leader is still the leader within that conference and still deeply, deeply respected. But what does this mean for McConnell's future in the Senate? That is a great question, Phil. The first time that he had a freezing incident in front of reporters, his office put out a statement afterwards and said, Leader McConnell will continue to serve as Republican leader through the rest of his term, which he has the rest of the this year and next year to be the Republican leader. But it's a different question 
after that. No one knows whether he will run again. And it's also a question whether Republicans would support him in doing so. At the time, we asked a bunch of Republicans whether they would support McConnell. They did not say if they would continue to serve him in a second term. So that is a big lingering question. And as you mentioned, Phil, it wasn't just yesterday. There have been multiple health scares involving Mitch McConnell. He had the other freezing incident earlier this year, and he also fell back in March. He tripped, he had a concussion, he broke some ribs, and he was out of the Senate for six weeks. Now, in terms of this latest incident, his office did say he is fine. We're also told that he was calling up some of his allies, and he even attended a fundraising event for Congressman Jim Bakes, who's running for Senate. And I want to read you part of the statement from his office. They said, Leader McConnell felt momentarily lightheaded and paused during his press conference today. While he feels fine, as a prudential measure, the leader will be consulting a physician prior to his next event. But, Phil, still no word on what the results of that visit was or whether it actually happened, and still no word on what the underlying cause is of these really alarming freezing moments that keep happening in front of cameras and in front of reporters. And so questions about his health and his political future only likely to continue. You know, if you can take the politics out of it and look at him like your grandfather or father and you see this happen. It's really, really disturbing. Um, But there is, of course, the politics of all of this. Does this make uh, the push for term limits on the Hill even stronger at this point? Not just him, but also you've got Dianne Feinstein as well. Yeah. You're exactly right, Sarah. I'm glad you pointed that out because Mitch McConnell is not the only one dealing with this. We have seen a very aging Senate, Dianne Feinstein. Of course, she is in her 90s. She is the California Democratic senator, and she has struggled with her health as well. She was out earlier this year, which caused a lot of problems for Democrats. But she has said that she would retire. So she is planning to retire at the end of her term versus Mitch McConnell. He hasn't said what he plans to do. I mean, in fact, ironically, the question that he froze at yesterday was a question about whether he would run for real election again in 2026. So it is a big question. I'm certain that we will probably see another push for term limits, but it's a sensitive issue. And a lot of Democrats and Republicans alike recognize that. Sarah and Phil. Melanie Zadona, thank you so much for reporting this early morning. Well, Rudy Giuliani has just lost the defamation lawsuit from two Georgia election workers. How much the former Trump attorney, who is already struggling financially, could have to pay? And a Russian guerrilla group is claiming responsibility for an attack on Russian soil. What we know about this group, that information ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. So this is a story you need to pay attention to. This morning, more legal problems for Rudy Giuliani. A federal judge has found him liable for defaming two Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman And her daughter, Shea Moss, sued Giuliani for repeating false claims that they helped commit election fraud. They say those claims put them through a, quote, living nightmare. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. All because a group of people, starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay, to push their own lies about how the presidential election was stolen. Now, the judge says she ruled in the workers' favor after Giuliani failed to provide discovery in the case. And I'm going to keep banging this drum for all of the legal threads going on with the former president right now. You have to pay attention to this one. The human element is real. CNN's Caitlin Polance joins us now. Uh, Caitlin, uh, it was to... To read through the 57-page opinion from the judge, uh, it was unsparing. 
Why? Because words have consequences. That is the point that the judge is trying to make here. Rudy Giuliani had said a lot of things about why he wasn't able to respond even to this lawsuit fully from these two Georgia election workers, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. And the judge said, none of that matters. You didn't do what you needed to do. I'm finding against you. You're defaulting. You're forfeiting this lawsuit, Rudy Giuliani. You should have known better as a lawyer, former prosecutor, uh, and that there will be consequences that come from not even having this go to the point where they could test uh, if he was intentionally making these statements. At this point in time, Rudy Giuliani not only threw up his hands in responding to the lawsuit, he also essentially admitted or conceded that he was making defamatory comments about these two women publicly. Uh, and now that this loss has been found by the judge, that Giuliani is losing this lawsuit, there's going to be a trial on the damages. So will he have to make them whole? How much will that cost? And also how much will he be punished on top of that with additional fines for what he said after the 2020 election about these two women in Georgia, essentially calling them uh, people who were trying to flip ballots as they were counting ballots, which was just not true. This is what the lawyer for these two women said on CNN last night to Caitlin Collins. His name's Michael Gottlieb. He's been representing them in this case. But you know, our expectation is that we'll be able to prove tens of millions of dollars in compensatory damages before you get to punitive damages. So we expect it to be a significant uh, damages case that we'll present to the jury, and we're confident in our ability to document and demonstrate it. Tens of millions? Yep, you heard me correctly. So Giuliani is not in a great place heading into that trial with this opinion from the judge now against him, but there will be a trial on how much he ultimately will have to pay. That'll take place later this year or at the beginning of the year, according to the judge. Their lives are forever changed. We, we, we heard some of their testimony that, that Ruby was saying, I'm afraid to leave my house. I mean, this is how scary they were getting death threats. So as you look at these details, it is so disturbing what can happen when the trolls pick up on what Rudy Giuliani said, and then they go after these two innocent women. All right. I do want to ask you about something else that has come up. Uh, the New York Attorney General's office says that uh, Donald Trump inflated his net worth. This is what they've been looking into. Inflated his net worth by as much as $2.2 billion. What else uh, did he, is he saying? Well, this is according to the New York AG's office as they've done a bunch of evidence gathering and their own calculations as they're heading towards a trial. They're accusing Donald Trump uh, of civil fraud, and that trial's supposed to be in October. So what they're doing is they're dumping all of this information into court filings of their findings, and they're saying that they believe by their calculations that in one year, 2014, there was a $2.2 billion disparity of Donald Trump inflating his net worth, $2.2 billion more than what it was worth in that year on paper. Uh, they also are saying that there are other calculations for other years where he was inflating it between 17 and 39 percent of what his actual worth was. Now, this will go to trial, and Donald Trump has a lot of defenses here that they are raising, things like no one was harmed, uh, and he personally had very little involvement in these numbers. But it is quite a startling number to see on paper from the New York AG's office. A startling number and a very interesting deposition that was also released. We're going to dig in more on that uh, later in the show. Caitlin Polans, great reporting as always, my friend. Thank you.
All right, now back to the tropical storm. Uh, Idalia is moving off the coast of the United States finally, but it has left a major mess destruction behind in several states. We'll talk to someone who rode out the storm and now has a huge cleanup on his hands. These are all little old school Florida villas and they were just picked up and carried into the Gulf. So that was heartbreaking to see. Like, you know, this trailer been sitting here ever since like 96, 96. And it hurt because I raised my kids up in this trailer. So, I don't know. But the good thing about it, I'm glad it wasn't nobody in here, you know, when it happened. There's no loss of life there, but boy, when you lose your home, it is really something devastating. That was a Florida mom in Madison County, which is about an hour away from Tallahassee, the capital, who lost her home in Hurricane Idalia. Steinhatchee, which is further south and closer to Florida's west coastline, was uh, one of the hardest hit places uh, in the state. The Category 3 hurricane delivered punishing winds, and you can see there a storm surge of nine feet to parts of that area. Those winds and water flooded and ripped apart the marina that our next guest owns, all while he was inside, hunkering down with his wife. Joining us now is the owner of uh, the Steenhatchee Marina at Dead Man's Bay, Captain Jody Griffiths. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, there was a warning uh, from authorities, sir, to please leave, get out. Do you regret staying, watching all this happen in front of your eyes? No, ma'am, I do not. Um, we, we've uh, we put our heart and soul in this place. It's a, a wonderful facility. It's built up the code requirements. Uh, I did have an elevator shaft. That was my escape plan. It's 14 inches of solid poured concrete. So um, if it really got bad, um, you know, we'd already decided that was our backup plan. And we should have been pretty safe in there. And we're up uh, on the third floor of that during that storm. So, uh, you know, we're about a little over 30 feet. Um, so storm surge wasn't really an issue. Um, you know, if the building started coming apart, uh, we'd have taken refuge in the elevator shaft. But uh, it was a sight to behold, uh, I cannot lie. When you look at it uh, from that perspective, we're looking at some of the video that you took as this was happening. What does it look like this morning? How much damage is there? Uh, and how much cleanup do you think? And how long do you think it's gonna take you to try and put things back together again? <laughs> Well, this is, you know, this whole area was hugely affected. Um, I got up on the, uh, I'm up on the fifth floor right now in our little office, and uh, I got up there, and although the wind was, you know, with all the rain and everything, you could, it decreased visibility as much as I'd like, but you couldn't see land anywhere from the fifth floor up here in the heat uh, when the storm surge was moving in, you know, at its capacity, full capacity. So, um, it was, it was unbelievable. Um, I, I bounced from balcony to balcony, you know, south elevation, um, because everything, it, there was so much going on at one time, it was hard to keep everything in the camera. So uh, I put the wife in the safe room and uh, I went and bounced around while the surge was coming in. And it was, like I say, it was a sight to behold. Clean up, uh, it's going to be massive um, because it did affect the whole county. Uh, my neighbor to the west, just west of us, I, I, we took a pretty good brunt the way that the river comes in out of the Gulf. Um, but Roy's restaurant, Miss Linda Wicker and Miss Nikki, um, they really got hit hard. I mean, they had a little real estate area over there. It's gone completely. Um, I've got it in some of the footage, I think, floating across the, 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 uh, the road. So it, it was a sight to behold. 
Well, it'll, I take, am, it'll take a while. I figured it would take some time. I am very happy to see that you are healthy and there and that while your property is damaged, you are still in a good spot and your wife as well. Uh, Captain Jody Griffiths, we'll be checking in with you to just see how things are going where you are after that massive storm hit y'all. Thank you. We'll be here. Thank you. Well, coming up ahead, what new U.S. intelligence is saying about a potential arms deal between Russia and North Korea. And imagine calling shotgun and losing to this. Love it. A bull. America. I love it, too. Uh, How far this Nebraska driver got with a bull. No, that's not like a stuffed thing. That's a real bull in his passenger seat. I got to know this guy. We'll have more on that next. Welcome back. And we want to go back to the new concerns, mounting concerns this morning about Senator Mitch McConnell's health after he suffered yet another health scare. As we mentioned earlier, he froze for about 30 seconds yesterday while speaking with reporters in Kentucky. That's about a month after he did the same exact thing on Capitol Hill during a press conference. I want to bring in our panel, senior reporter for The Root, Jessica Washington, former Manhattan prosecutor Jeremy Salan, and political video reporter for The Washington Post, Joyce Coe. Joyce, I want want to start with you because... The first response, I think, for most people, I hope, is there's a human response of that's scary. It's scary to watch. It's scary to watch. I know his team feels the same exact way. People who don't like him feel the same exact way for political reasons, feel uh, the same exact way from a human reason. But the what's next is, I think, a very real, palpable, growing question on Capitol Hill. What's your sense of things? Yeah, we saw that human response from, excuse me, members of both sides of the aisle. President Biden yesterday even responding, saying that, They have political differences, but that he was concerned watching that and he was going to call his friend Mitch McConnell later on and check up on him. Um, And you even hear that from the ground in Kentucky. I was speaking to several sources there, uh, state lawmakers who watched that and they said their jaws dropped when they saw Mitch McConnell experiencing this freezing episode again. But you're right. The big question that comes after this is that Democrats specifically in Kentucky are asking is whether or not there are people around McConnell in his circle, his aides, his staffers that are having these conversations with him on whether or not, you know, he's served a very long time. He's been in office in that position since 1985, whether or not he should be resigning at this point, seeing that there are these health concerns uh, that are very visible in the public eye. You know, it also goes to these questions of, He's made no indication that he's going to resign. You know, he said that he's fine. His office has said that it was him feeling lightheaded. Um, But if he were to resign, you know, what would that look like? The formal process in Kentucky now is that the governor... The Democratic governor. The Democratic governor of Kentucky would have to appoint a Republican senator to that position if he were to do that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Speaking of sort of the political part of all this... 2024 is coming ahead. And I, and I do want to ask you, Jessica, about the issue of age, because when it comes to the president, you see a lot of people, especially on the right, really going after him, saying that he is too old to do the job that he's doing. But you have Mitch McConnell, which you don't hear that from the right, and you have Dianne Feinstein, who, where, who has also been attacked. She has said she's going to, she's not going to run again. Uh, but she's still in her position. What's going to happen? Is this going to play into the 2024 presidential race, you think? 
Yeah, I think there's potential for it. The fact that age is becoming salient, certainly people were talking about Mitch McConnell's multiple episodes. I think there's deep concern. You know, are these people cognitively able to do the job, particularly with Mitch McConnell, where we can see it visibly? Mm-hmm. I think with Biden, we haven't seen these same um, episodes. So I do think this is going to play into it. And we've already seen it in polling. I mean, polling both among Democrats and, you know, Republicans, they're saying, you know, Biden might be too old for this job. I don't think that means that Democrats are not going to pull the lever for him. We haven't had any indication that they're going to say, I would rather have Trump or another Republican in office over Biden because of his age. But certainly this seems like a salient issue in the election. And just to quickly follow up, it's not about age. It's about competency, or at least it should be. People can see a number. I know an 85-year-old who's sharper than I am which I know isn't saying a whole lot, but, but still, you know, watch it, Phil. I knew you were going to do it, so I did it for you. Um, but, but, but truly, like, there are people who um, are, are very sharp and are still capable of doing the job, and if that's the case, the age shouldn't matter, but you know how we are. Well, but there's also generational issues, and that's I think right. to your point on the that's polling, right. when you have the front runner for the Republican nomination is in his mid to late 70s, when you have President Biden, when you look across the Senate, and if you're a younger person who is a significant part, particularly the Democratic coalition, you're looking yeah. around going, well, who represents me? And I think it's, a, it's an issue we're going to be talking about a lot. Jeremy, though, I do want to swing over to legal issues. There are a couple of Trump threads we want to talk about, but I want to start with Giuliani uh, opinion that we saw yesterday in terms of the, the lawsuit from the two Georgia election workers. What the judge decided to do was to basically say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong as a non-lawyer, but like, we're not even going to give you, you have been so bad and so unresponsive, we're not even going to give you a chance anymore. This is done. Fair? Absolutely. You know, with the man's experience in law, it comes as a shock, but then again, maybe it shouldn't with all the things we were learning about Giuliani and Trump and Eastman, that he is intentionally withholding this evidence and this discovery that will allow the the, the, the plaintiffs here, Moss and Freeman, to say, this is what happened to me. These are the damages. These are the monies you have. These are the text exchange. He's withholding all of that in an effort to avoid responsibility, not just in the civil matter, but arguably more so to protect himself potentially in the criminal matter, because there is a nexus, even though one is civil, there's a very tight knit between the two. Can I, just to follow on that, he had stipulations where he basically acknowledged that he had right. defamed them, but it, the judge, I believe, referred to it as Swiss cheese uh, in the 57-page opinion. Why? You know, you know, it's similar, you know, you thread a needle to try to work both sides. I mean, that needle has no hole to thread. He's basically saying, I want to avoid the sanctions. I want to avoid that, the monetary damages, but I want to protect myself in the event that this comes up in the criminal trial, which it very well could as part of subversion, whether in Georgia or elsewhere. So it is absolutely ridiculous. You don't find people in a defamation admitting to defamation per se and saying, yeah, I defamed this person. But at the same time, I had a constitutional right to defame them and there was no injury. And then I'm not going to tell you and give you the evidence. It's just an effort to escape responsibility on its face. Real quick, last one on this before we have to go. The, uh, the lawyer for the two election workers said tens of millions of dollars is what they're going to be seeking and maybe able to get. You think that's a ballpark? I mean, it's, it's bold. It's very bold but you're not going to undercut yourself. Why would you say anything right. less? So I, I don't put too much weight into that at this point in time. Yeah. You know, we'll learn. And if we don't, the judges said that the jury can be you know, advised that, again, Giuliani's withholding this evidence of his monetary ability to pay. Yeah. Well, uh, and we know he's in trouble, though, so it will... With actually, yeah, his financial right. situation. Very also, not time to you can quantify the damage done to two right. people that we've seen. Right. All right, Jessica, Joyce, Jeremy, thank you guys very much, as always. All right, overnight in South Africa, more than 70 people are dead after a fire ripped through a building there. We'll take you live to Johannesburg. 
And the Biden administration has approved the first ever transfer of U.S. military equipment to Taiwan under a special program. What's in it and how China is already responding? That's next. The Biden administration has approved the first ever transfer of military aid to Taiwan through a State Department financing program typically reserved for sovereign nation. The package totals $80 million, and U.S. taxpayers will, of course, be footing the bill for that. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins us live from the State Department. What can you tell us about uh, what what this is and the timing of all of this is significant as well? Yeah, there's a few things about this new type of military assistance that the U.S. is giving to Taiwan that are that are pretty significant, Sarah. First of all, this is typically a program that, as you said, is for sovereign nations. And so uh, this is the U.S. providing military support to Taiwan, as it has in the past, but through this new program. And because the U.S. is going ahead and providing this assistance with this new type of program, it's likely to enrage China because we have seen China uh, be infuriated in the past when the U.S. has provided military support uh, to Taiwan. But because they're using this different kind of program, typically for sovereign nations, of course, China doesn't view Taiwan as a sovereign nation. It's likely to see uh, China pretty enraged by this situation. The other fact that we need to consider is just, you know, what makes this program different than the other types of military sales that the U.S. has given to Taiwan in the past? The difference here is that this financing for this program is actually paid for by U.S. taxpayer dollars. So Taiwan isn't going to be paying for this military equipment. It's the U.S. government, U.S. taxpayer dollars that are going to be paying for this $80 million in new military equipment going to Taiwan. Now, when the State Department alerted Congress earlier this week that they were moving ahead with this funding, here's what they said, quote, FMF, which is foreign military financing, will be used to strengthen Taiwan's self-defense capabilities through joint and combined defense capability and enhance maritime domain awareness and maritime security capability. Now, this alert didn't say exactly what kind of military support Taiwan is going to get with this new financing, but there are a whole host of options that could be included, like drones, like military training, like missile defense programs, a lot of options that Taiwan is now going to be open to because of this new financing. Yeah, and it's not just by the financing. It's about the fact that it's for sovereign nations which is really a signal to China that the U.S. is going to support Taiwan if there is uh, some sort of attack. That's what it's going to look like for sure to China. We will wait and see what China's response is. Kylie Atwood, thank you so much. Appreciate your reporting. All right, this morning, new U.S. intelligence reveals Russia and North Korea are actively advancing negotiations for a potential arms deal. Russian officials have visited Pyongyang twice in the last month. The National Security Council also says... North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un and Russian President Vladimir Putin have been exchanging letters pledging to increase their bilateral cooperation. The newly released intelligence is the latest indication that the Kremlin is trying desperately to get more ammunition for its faltering invasion of Ukraine. And this is a story that really caught my attention this morning. A group of pro-Ukrainian Russian guerrilla fighters claiming responsibility for a drone strike in Russia's Kursk region on Sunday. They're called the Russian Volunteer Corps. They say the attack struck a residential building, a claim Russia is currently denying. Now, the guerrilla group also says they worked in tandem with, Ukrainian, with the Ukrainian security service. CNN's Melissa Bell is live for us in Zaporizhia, Ukraine, with more. Melissa, what do we know about what's called the Russian Volunteer Corps? 
Well, essentially, Phil, this is one of two principal paramilitary groups that are based inside Ukraine, made up of Russian citizens who are not just opposed to the war, and I think this is interesting, but also more broadly to Vladimir Putin's rule, determined to bring it to an end. And what we've seen these last few months are a number of incursions on their part across the border to carry out attacks. Now, this one, as you mentioned, hit a residential building. They went across the border and with their drones say they also managed to attack an airfield, causing damage uh, there. Now, Russia has denied, said that it managed to push off, uh, foil those drone attacks. But it is important, not only because of the political aspect of, again, this Russian group functioning from within Ukraine's borders, but because of the increasingly obviously porous nature of that border. 1,200 miles that separate Ukraine from Russia that have increasingly seen not just attacks by these particular paramilitary Russian groups, but of course also uh, by Ukrainian forces over the course of the last few months. We saw overnight on Wednesday the largest drone attack on Russia since the war began. And that's important because it is about taking out Russian capabilities, even as Russia tries to resupply its lines just south of here in Zabrycha, where Ukrainian forces have continued to make such progress. Small progress in terms of the land they've retaken, significant progress because of the bridgeheads they're creating and the momentum that they feel they now have, Phil. All right, Melissa Belfort on the ground in Ukraine. Thanks so much. Well, college football as we know it is in its final season. It also starts tonight. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. You know, Seidner, if the the world feels like it's in a better place today. Well, hello, Gator fans. (laughs) It's because tonight is week one of the college football season. It kicks off. Week zero was a couple days ago. This is the real start. But it will also be the start of the final college football season as we know it. Conference realignment and the growth of the playoff field will bring major shakeups to the sport. My Florida Gators, ladies and gentlemen, that's not them. But my Florida, that's also not them. (laughs) Florida Gators are playing tonight against 14th ranked Utah Utes in Salt Lake City. This is a big game, huge. Andy Scholes, please tell me my Florida Gators are going to win this one. (laughs) What are the predictions? We'll see. <laughs> They're underdogs, but you know, you know, guys, you know, this is actually, uh, Sarah, this is the first time your Gators are playing a non-conference road game outside of the state of Florida since 1991. It's kind of crazy to think about, but you know, we all do need to cherish this college football season because between conference realignment and the expanded playoff, you know, things are going to look very different next year. The tradition. <laughs> the rivalries. Go the passion. There's nothing quite like college football, and this season will mark the end of an era for the sport. There's a lot of traditions that we've had for a long time in college football, and some of those traditions are going to get sort of pushed by the wayside, I think, and it's sad. Conference realignment was the harshest it's ever been this summer. The biggest blow to the Pac-12, where this season will be the last for the conference as we know it. It isn't one singular thing that led to the destruction of the Pac-12 as we know it. It was it was a bunch of decisions and a, um, you know failed strategies that put us in this place. A year after USC and UCLA announced their intentions to move to the Big Ten in 2024, the Pac-12 completely crumbling this summer as Colorado, Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah left for the Big 12, and then Oregon and Washington jumped ship, joining USC and UCLA in the move to the Big Ten. 
All this is about money. You know that. It's about a bag. Everybody's chasing a bag. Then you get mad at the players when they chase it. Legendary broadcaster Brad Nessler, who's been one of the voices of college football for the past 30 years, says it's unfortunate how things have transpired. When you've got UCLA or USC going to play Rutgers or, you know, whatever the case might be, it's it's really going to be different. And, you know, you're going to lose a lot of rivalries. And to see a whole conference blow up like that was sad. This will also be the last season for the Big 12 as we know it, as founding members Texas and Oklahoma play one more season in the conference before making the move to the SEC. That means this season will be the last for one of the best rivalries in the sport, Oklahoma versus Oklahoma State. The Bedlam game is over because Oklahoma chose to leave the Big 12, period. It's got nothing to do with Oklahoma State. So do I like that? No. This will also be the last season for just four playoff teams. Next year, it moves to 12 teams, the largest field college football has ever seen. It's going to be really different. I think even with 12 teams, I personally think that there's about six teams, maybe eight teams that have a chance of winning the national championship. So I think that the cream of that crop is always going to rise. But, you know, if it helps a Tulane get in or a Boise State or Cincinnati, you know, I'm all for that. I think it still might expand even more than that in years to come. Yeah, Georgia once again starts at the top, ranked number one. The Bulldogs trying to win their third straight title, something that hasn't been done since Minnesota won three in a row in the 1930s. But again, you know, guys, I'm really going to cherish this season because I, I'm not a fan of 12 teams making the playoffs. You know, the college football regular season, it's arguably always been the best because each game every week means so much. You know, Phil, you went to Ohio State. I mean, if if the Buckeyes and Michigan are both undefeated uh, going into the game after Thanksgiving, yeah. they're both making the playoffs. Who, who, who really cares? You know, that game won't matter. I mean, I, I do, because uh, <laughs> I would like Ohio State in the playoffs. Also, you note Ness was talking about the cream of the crop. We're going to roll into the seven, and people are going to yell at us. But Ness talking about the cream of the crop, that's Ohio State. Not Florida. Andy Schultz, my man. Thank <laughs> you, my friend. You don't need to uh, learn something about the SEC, but we, we, we will teach you how to play football. Just cider. let you know. Oh, CNN This Morning continues right now. The storm's rain is now covering four states, stretching 600 miles from Florida all the way up to North Carolina. The Tampa Bay area, that is where we saw some of the more severe flooding homes that saw anywhere between four to six inches of water go inside. Here's the aftermath. These are all little old school Florida villas, and they were just picked up and carried into the Gulf. This right here is bad. This is bad. But the storm surge is like a tsunami-like feature. You can just see how destructive it is there firsthand at Cedar Keep. I can't even keep my head up because the winds are so strong out here and it is blowing the sand directly into my face. New questions about Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell after he appeared to freeze for about 30 seconds while speaking with reporters. Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? The aides came there quickly, but they did not seem surprised. You get the sense that this happens quite a bit. Concerns about his health really resonate with the public, so I think they should be a little bit more transparent about where he is right now. I feel for him. A federal judge held Giuliani liable for defaming those two Georgia election workers who he falsely accused of election fraud. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. It will be a trial for how much money he's going to have to be on the hook for, for the emotional distress, for the defamation, and also punitive damages. Our expectation is that we'll be able to prove tens of millions of dollars. A good Thursday morning, everyone. College football starts tonight. Cider and I are going to try and not 
get into fisticuffs by the end of this show based on our allegiances, but more importantly, you're back from Florida. You were covering the hurricane down there on the ground yesterday, and that's exactly where we want to start. Uh, where this morning, Idalia is now a tropical storm cutting a devastating path of destruction across parts of the southeast. It's moving slowly north along the Carolina coast. It's weaker, but still bringing heavy rain, flash floods, and tornado threats to the Carolinas. Now, you remember, Idalia slammed into Florida's Big Bend region as a Category 3 hurricane, the strongest storm to hit that region in at least 125 years. Then, it rolled over Georgia and into South Carolina as a Category 1 storm, unleashing torrential rains and flooding. And as you might imagine, there were homes decimated, communities flooded, roads still unpassable. This morning, a lot of residents unable to fathom how to begin after losing everything they owned. We have team coverage with CNN's Carlos Suarez, who is live in Tampa, Florida for us. But first to Diane Gallagher in North Carolina, where uh, Idalia is moving off the coast. But Diane, you were talking about the fact that this hour is supposed to be the worst of it. And I see those winds have really picked up. Yeah, Sarah, Idalia may be moving out into the ocean, but we're still getting tropical storm force wind gusts here in Wilmington, North Carolina. We expect this to continue at least for the next hour or so in southeastern North Carolina. The good news is the rain has let up just a little bit. The flash flood warnings have expired. Uh, but people here in coastal Carolina areas experience just a lashing from this storm overnight. Uh, lots of localized flooding and low-lying trouble areas because of those king tide, the storm surge, and all the rain that has fallen. There are still some areas, such as in Columbus County, where we're seeing road closures. Overall, most of that flooding has receded. Right now, the concern is winds. Public transportation in Wilmington is delayed this morning because of these high winds. I don't know if you can kind of see behind me here. We've got a lot of bridges in the coastal part of North Carolina that people drive over. They like to minimize the number of cars that are over those bridges. At least least until mid to late morning here in this area. Uh, now, look, in Southport, North Carolina, they've stopped the ferry services today, again, because of these high winds. And the concern going forward into the afternoon is going to be the riptides, the currents in the ocean. Of course, Labor Day weekend coming up, a lot of visitors to this part of the country. They want to make sure people stay out of the water, uh, at least until they tell them it's okay, because it is dangerous for people who are not strong swimmers. Diane Gallagher, thank you for braving all, braving all of that nutty weather there uh, in North Carolina. I appreciate your time. CNN's Carlos Suarez is joining us now from Tampa, Florida, where we've been watching Phil and I uh, for the last couple of days. Just absolute flooding. You can yeah. see uh, Derek Van Dam, who uh, was in the middle of it as the storm was coming through and watching this, this whole area. That's a road normally. Yesterday uh, morning, 24 hours ago. Just 24 hours ago. Yeah. What is the situation this morning uh, after we all witnessed that all of yesterday? Yes, yeah, Sarah and Phil, the flooding out here in Tampa has receded and the cleanup effort really across Hillsborough County is well underway. The lone mandatory evacuation order out here was lifted yesterday and the bridges that connect Tampa out to St. Pete and Clearwater have reopened. Now to the north of us, it is a very different situation up in Pasco County. Thousands of homes have been damaged by flooding there and at least 150 people had to be rescued from their homes. Hurricane Idalia barreled through Florida Wednesday, making landfall near Keaton Beach. Uh, my house okay. is down in Keaton. Okay. I don't know if it's there or not, but this right here, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm gonna have a house to go 
home to. The eye of the storm ripped through Florida's Big Bend region with maximum sustained winds of 125 miles per hour. Resulting in a once in a century weather event. It was bad. It was heavy, heavy, heavy winds. Um, worst I've ever been in. The Category 3 storm left homes demolished and streets flooded. We clearly have uh, significant damage throughout the Big Bend region. This family in Perry, Florida watched as trees fell directly on their home. Oh my gosh. No! It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Up and down Florida's west coast, record-breaking storm surge occurred. In Citrus County, Crystal River left devastated by floodwaters. People are actually really going strong and and we are an entire city of Crystal River is in a flood zone, so we we have no choice but to, to move to higher ground. Further south along the coast in Hudson Beach, crews rescued residents by boat as the floodwaters came rushing into their homes. I can't believe this. I've never seen nothing like it. This family rescued but heartbroken to leave everything behind. And it just came in before we can get out, man, like so quick. We're trying to get in the truck and it's up to the barely able to get the doors open. In Pasco County, around 150 residents were rescued from flooded neighborhoods. This home caught fire in the midst of the floodwaters. Michael Bobbitt from Cedar Key, Florida, says he stayed behind to weather the storm. These are all little old school Florida villas, and they were just picked up and carried into the Gulf. So that was heartbreaking to see. One resident on Anna Maria Island posted this video of her swimming through floodwaters at four in the morning. Golf carts, cars were flooded, the trailer homes. I mean, it was up to our knees, our waist. We're riding bikes through it, so it got pretty high. Idalia then traveled north through Georgia into South Carolina, where the storm surge reached nine feet in Charleston, according to the National Weather Service, leaving roadways throughout the state treacherous. This car in Goose Creek, South Carolina, flipped over in the middle of the road. And we spent the day uh, yesterday over in Pinellas County, just to the west of uh, Tampa. We were in the city of Gulfport, where the flooding there uh, really has also receded. And the folks who left their homes there ahead of that storm were allowed to return yesterday. Uh, Phil and Sarah, as, uh, as early as this morning, were told that at least 140,000 homes and businesses across the state of Florida are without power. All right, Carlos Suarez, thank you so much. And just quick note, I saw a whole bunch of power trucks as I was leaving late yesterday afternoon. They were flying just to try to get in place because it takes some time. Yeah, for them I to think store. tens of thousands were ready to yeah. deploy, certainly deploying now. We want to turn to another very important story that happened yesterday, and we're continuing to follow throughout the course of today. Another health scare for Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. The 81-year-old Republican appeared to freeze for about 30 seconds during a Q&A with reporters in his home state of Kentucky yesterday. Watch. Did you hear the question, Senator, running for re-election in 2026? All right, I'm sorry, you all, we're going to need a minute. Now, this is just the latest in a string of health-related incidents for McConnell this year. That includes several falls, as well as a similar freezing episode at the U.S. Capitol late last month. And it's all raising additional questions about the fitness of the 81-year-old to lead Senate Republicans. Joining us now, Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Scott Jennings, senior political commentator and a longtime friend and advisor to Leader McConnell. And Scott, that's kind of where I want to start with you, because the contrast of yesterday... Uh, 
really kind of feeds into what I've been hearing over the course of the last several months, where you talk to people around McConnell, you talk to Senate Republicans. I spoke to a Republican senator last night who would say, in our interactions with him, we don't see stuff like this, which to some degree almost makes it more jarring and more unsettling when you do. Yesterday was a great example of that. A couple of hours later, he was at a fundraiser for a top-tier Senate candidate in Indiana. You were with him as well uh, yesterday, I believe. How's he doing? Well, he was doing great last night. Um, you know, I should also point out on the video, you know, what is not being shown very often is the fact that, you know, 30 seconds later, he came back and he answered several more questions from reporters. And right. then he took off. And as you pointed out, he came back home to Louisville. I was with him with Jim Banks, who's running for Senate in Indiana. He met with a group, answered questions, worked the crowd uh, and was, you know, on top of it, sharp and fully in command of, uh, you know, all the all the politics and issues of the day. So and I, and I should also tell you, I, I was with him two days ago and watched him give a long speech to a lunch crowd and then answer several questions from that crowd and uh, in the midst of another long day. So throughout the month of August, uh, he has kept up a pretty robust schedule. He was down at the Fancy Farm Political Picnic, which is a huge, you know, thousands of person thing. You probably saw a video on that. So uh, it's really kind of in business as usual for McConnell, other than this incident that happened uh, that you showed the video of. Uh, it's been a normal, uh, robust schedule for him, uh, from my perspective and my up-close observations throughout this month. I'm no doctor, but to hear that he has still a robust schedule, that he went to a fundraiser afterwards, um, I don't know. It just seems like he's pushing himself in a way that might be problematic. I want to get to Sanjay Gupta, our resident doctor here. As a neurosurgeon, what did you see? What did you make of what happened? Well, first of all, let me just say that what Scott is describing is really important to know because whatever this is, it, it comes and goes, and it seems to come and go quickly. And in the world of, of uh, you know, when you're looking at the brain, that's an important sort of clue. What, what I saw, and, and this is, I think, an appropriate term here, is the, is the term freezing. Um, that, that, does, that does sort of describe this freezing of his body, freezing of his speech, freezing of his face. His hands were very clenched to the side of the lectern. Uh, one of his aides came over and was, you know, trying to, I think, just uh, raise his arm. And he was, he was pretty locked in there for about 30 seconds. But then, as Scott mentions, a, a short time later, uh, he, he seems to be more lucid again and seems to improve. And when he walks out of the room, he's walking out, moving his arms and his legs, which is important because people think, is this some sort of stroke or precursor to stroke, such as TIA? Less likely, given how quickly the recovery happens. You do think of things like a, a seizure, for example, a, a sort of mini seizure that can cause these sorts of symptoms, or even certain medications or coming off medications. People who have Parkinson's, for example, when their medications start to wane off, they may have freezing episodes. But again, um, it, it, it comes and goes. And I think what is curious is we've seen it twice. The aides that rushed to his side, they, they didn't seem so uh, sort of affected by it, almost to the point where you wonder, is this something they're more used to? Uh, if this were the first time it happened, I would say, look, you got to get to the doctor, figure out, is something going on here with the blood flow to your brain or something? They didn't seem to react that way, which I thought was another important clue. You know, Scott, it's an interesting point because for people, if you see the video, the woman in the video is somebody uh, from the event itself. The gentleman you see who, who very clearly uh, kind of reads and understands the leader quite well is from his service detail who I've seen around him for years at this point. But to what Sanjay's saying, 
and I think also to your point, where you guys see and talk to him on a regular basis, uh, people don't seem surprised, unsettled, at least in kind of their public response to what they've seen. Is that the case in kind of McConnell world, which is a very tight-knit group? Well, first of all, the woman is Robin Taylor. Uh, she is Senator McConnell's director. She travels with him to all of his events. His oh, state. you're right. She sees oh, him sorry. up close. Yeah. I saw her. Yeah, I saw her last night as well. And she was telling me about the, you know, the the breakneck schedule he's got them on in the month of August. Mm-hmm. And I know they've been running around and, and doing all sorts of things. I mean, he's had a number of press interactions, constituent interactions, uh, you know, sort of speech uh, interactions, but also just private meetings. I mean, she has seen him up close all month and he's been perfectly fine and has been um, in, you know, in full command of all the duties that you would expect a U.S. senator to perform. I think she was uh, in the moment wondering, uh, truthfully, whether he had heard the question, because I think since he had his concussion, there have been some moments where obviously his hearing has not been quite as good as it used to be. And so I think she has gotten used to making sure he heard uh, the gist of the questions that are being asked. And I, I think that's what you saw her reacting to in that moment. But, you know, last night, she told me as soon as they got back in the car after the event, you know, he was a chatterbox all the way from northern Kentucky down to Louisville. And, and I can personally attest at the at the Banks event, he he had no trouble hearing, no trouble speaking and no trouble telling everybody how focused he is on winning back the Senate majority. So there was I mean, it was it was like nothing had happened. It was it was really something. Scott, uh, sir, Sarah's got a, a few more for Sanjay, but I, I do want to ask you that I think his office had said that they plan to see a doctor between the event and the fundraiser yesterday. Do we have any sense of whether that happened, how things went with that? Uh, I don't know, to be candid with you, yeah, Phil. I suspect he did, but I but I. I, I not able to speak to that right now. Um, Scott spoke of uh, the other things that have happened uh, medically to to McConnell. He experienced some serious major health issues, and there was a fall. Can you walk us through what the th- what he went through, Sanjay? Um, and this has happened, I guess, over the past eight months. We've seen uh, numerous mm. things that has happened with him. Can you walk us through that? Well, I'll preface by saying, you know, he, he did have a history of polio as a child, so he's always had difficulty walking, is my understanding. And even back in 2019, four years ago, he had a significant fall, you may remember, I think fractured or at least dislocated his shoulder mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the timeline here, um, there have been some, you know, pretty significant events, a fall back in February, that significant fall you're talking about that led to a concussion and broken ribs and a hospitalization, that was in March. He's had these episodes where he's had trouble hearing reporters. It's, it's tough to tell if he loses his train of thought or that's actual hearing loss. Hearing loss is not uncommon in someone his age. Uh, another fall in the, in the middle of July. And then these two episodes now, about a month apart, where, again, freezing is the right term in, in terms of what happened, lasting about 30 seconds. And again, as Scott pointed out last time as, and this time as well, he does seem to recover quickly from, from whatever this is. But I think he needs to get it checked out and, and have a diagnosis so that it doesn't get worse. All right, Scott, I just want to quickly go to you because politics is going to play into this no matter uh, what you think on a human level. If this same thing would have happened to Biden during a press conference, there would have been an uproar, correct? Do you think that age is going to really play into the 2024 uh, election cycle because of what's happening with McConnell, these freezes, what's happened with Dianne Feinstein? And, you know, people coming after mostly folks from the Republican side, but there are some Democrats coming after Biden for his age. 
Uh, yes, uh, without question. I think Joe Biden's biggest political problem, honestly, and there was a big uh, a survey that came out yesterday on this, is the belief that he is uh, too old to do the job or he is not up to doing the job of president of the United States. That's a different job than U.S. Senator. And I should note McConnell's actually not up for re-election until 2026. But one of Joe Biden's biggest problems uh, is a persistent belief that uh, he should have not run again over his age. And that is, as you pointed out, a belief that's held by a lot of Democrats. Now, I do think a lot of those people will ultimately vote for him because they don't Donald Trump or some other Republican. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it's going to be a big issue. And it's also probably going to honestly highlight the role of the vice president uh, in this next election. And that'll be true for both parties if the, if the Republicans nominate Donald Trump, although he's been you know, quite vigorous, you know, he's no spring chicken either. Right. And so, yeah, in our politics, are we having a conversation about age? Absolutely. We should be having a conversation, I think, about term limits, too. And I know that conversation does come around every now and then. Thank you to both of you. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, you know I love you. Scott Jennings, I got some love for you, too. Thank you both. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Overnight in South Africa, more than 70 people were killed after a building went up in flames. We are live for you in Johannesburg. And why several people were taken off a Delta flight on stretchers. We'll have more of that coming up next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New overnight, a devastating fire in South Africa. At least 73 people were killed after that fire ripped through a building in Johannesburg. The fire is now out and emergency services are conducting recovery operations. Officials say it took place in what they're calling a hijacked building, meaning a place taken over by hundreds of squatters and those who are houseless. CNN's David McKenzie is live in Johannesburg with more on this. David, what a terrible scene there with more than 70 people killed. Sarah and Phil, it's absolutely tragic. If you look behind me, this building is absolutely gutted. In the early hours of the morning, a fire broke out and ripped through this area. People described to me how they were desperate to try and get out, breaking through windows, some tying comforters and blankets out of the windows to try and get out. At least two people have told me that there were gates that were locked, which meant that people couldn't get out. You see some of the firefighters there behind me. They have been exhausted. They lauded for their efforts to try get some survivors out. I spoke to one man who survived. He ended up unconscious. Uh, he doesn't know where his family members are because of uh, the chaos that ensued as this unfolded. Uh, now, you say this is a hijacked building. That is correct. Bizarre as it sounds. This building was taken over, we believe, by gangsters. Then people without the means to afford rent were squished in together into rooms 5, 10, 15 at a time, Sarah. And that means that when this fire broke out, it was total chaos. There are bodies strewn on the street. Many of them burnt beyond recognition. You know, behind my shoulder there, you can see the forensic teams that are suiting up. They've been here for several hours now. They'll have to have the painstaking efforts to try and identify the bodies. And there are bigger questions here. Questions about the crumbling infrastructure of this country and also the deep inequalities in South Africa, that people who can live in the rich areas have safety, they have access to private security and fire services. Those that live in areas like this, in the poorer parts of Johannesburg, many of them migrants from other countries, are dealing with the squalor and this possibility of dying in this awful situation like this behind me. Sarah Phil. 
What a terrible, tragic scene there. Thank you so much, David McKenzie. I know you'll be following this throughout the day. We'll, we'll be checking back in with you later. Well, it was a scare for passengers and crew on a Delta Airlines flight. 11 people were taken to the hospital after the Italy to Atlanta bound flight hit severe and unexpected turbulence. Some had to be taken off the flight on stretchers. Now, witnesses described the plane dropping in the middle of the flight and seeing two flight attendants hit the ceiling. The FAA is launching an investigation. That is why they always tell you to put on your seatbelts yeah. if you're sitting down. New York Attorney General's office now says that Donald Trump inflated his net worth by as much as $2.2 billion in a year. And they also just released a transcript of Trump's deposition from April. What we've learned from that transcript, that's coming up next. New York Attorney General Letitia James is piling on to former President Trump's already enormous legal woes, making public new estimates of just how much she and her office are accusing Trump of inflating his net worth ahead of his October civil fraud trial. Now, in the court filing made public yesterday, she alleges Trump and allies, quote, employed a variety of deceptive schemes to grossly inflate values for many of Trump's assets, from anywhere between roughly $800 million to more than $2 billion. Now, Worth noting, Trump's team responded in filings Wednesday that the whole case should be thrown out. James, meanwhile, is asking a judge to rule on it without a trial because of the overwhelming evidence her office says it has presented. Now, this is also interesting. Back in April, Trump actually sat down with James's office for a seven-hour deposition, which was also unsealed yesterday. Now, it shows him putting up a hodgepodge of defenses. First, he never thought his financial statements would be taken seriously. He said he prepared the statements, quote, just for himself, to see a list of properties. Next, it wasn't actually him. It was his son, Eric. Trump says his son has taken over control of the business in recent years, but also added that he does still have say on major final decisions. Whatever. Trump says he has been hands-off since launching his campaign in 2015, and his kids took over when he assumed office in 2017. But James's suit dates back to 2011. And in 2014, the year before he announced his White House bid, James alleges he inflated his net worth by up to $2.23 billion. But Trump argued that James's office underestimated his worth because they overlooked how valuable his brand is. If that were reflected, he said you could double or even triple his financial statements. James's allegations continue through 2021, including Trump's four years in the White House. During those years, however, Trump says he was too busy to commit fraud, preoccupied with what he calls the most important job in the world, quote, saving millions of lives, and also saying he prevented a nuclear holocaust with North Korea. Now, asked whether the Trump Organization has any protocols to make sure it complies with the law, Trump said that is why they have lawyers, and that he has a reputation for being, quote, the most honest person in the world. Sarah? Already then. Joining us now, Summer 4 politics reporter Shelby Talcott, Washington Post political video reporter Joyce Coe, Thank you for returning. We weren't too terrible to you. And my homie, and also a senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Ellie, I love that as my Chiron. Your home, my homie. Please. I think it would be a good one for you. Um, let's start with um, what is happening today with Meadows. Um, give us some sense of, I feel like all of these cases, you've got several people now saying, we want our trial fast in Georgia. Yes. How in the world? Are the, is this going to happen? How are they going to do it? There's so many moving parts. There's 19 defendants in the Fulton County case. Mark Meadows is trying to get his case moved over from state court, where he was charged, over into federal court. And the touchstone there is going to be, was he acting within his official job as White House Chief of Staff, 
or outside his job. Now, the judge, the federal judge who's deciding this issue, sort of did a favor for the parties. He said, here's the key issue that I'm stuck on, and the parties have to submit their briefs on this today. He said, what if I find that some of his acts were inside the lines, some of his acts were outside the lines, then do I take the case or not? And the answer is we don't know. This is why we're in unprecedented ground. And so the judge is going to have to read the briefs, decide who made the better argument. I'm sure Fonnie Willis's office will say, if you're outside the lines right. with some of it, you're outside the lines. I'm sure Meadows is going to say, if some of it was in my job, I'm entitled to the protection. So this judge knows he's going to be appealed either way. And he's, I think, just trying to gather the best argument and, and do his best to make the right call here. Can I swing back, uh, Ellie, before we broaden it out yep. a little bit to... Uh, I worked very hard, and so did Andrew, uh, anchor producer, mm -hmm. on what we just did. And you just immediately, one, I teed up an amazing <laughs> line for you. Andrew teed that up uh, with great writing. And you just kind of walked away from it. Do tell. Uh, I want to talk about Mark Meadows. No and I'm like, yo, like, what's the, all. like, and you called I, Ellie your homie. And what have I, you never called me your homie. Th that's true. Um, should I focus instead of just airing grievances? <laughs> Perhaps. On, on the actual substance of what we saw, yes. you, you forget that this even exists. I, literally, when the news was coming out yesterday, I was sitting there going, oh, oh right, yes, that, that was a thing. Uh, yeah. And there was a deposition back in April, read, read the deposition. On the substance, yeah. what is there? Should people be looking at that as another significant potential issue, even though it's civil? Yeah, this is a big case. It's a big civil case involving hundreds of millions of dollars, but it's also the fifth most important case right. Trump is facing right now after the four criminal cases. That deposition is really interesting. I mean, Trump argues... Uh, because of the Trump name, I could have even claimed it was double or triple the value. There's no question he inflated the assets. But the problem with the case is no one really got defrauded because the banks on the other end, the banks who were making those loans, they decided with, after doing their own diligence, we're going to make these loans. And they got repaid with interest. So they made profits. That's why I think, by the way, it wasn't charged criminally. So technically, is it a fraud? Yes. But you don't really have a victim, which makes it less appealing as a, a criminal case. I just wanted to point out, just oh boy, since we you go. were on a rant, yeah. um, that Ellie said this is the fifth most important case. So Yeah, but you, you were teed up with a great line. I'm just saying, What's the, the fifth. I decided to go with one pick of the, up the, vibe the higher here. ones. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to let you ask the next question since this is your show. You, you um, do you. Shelby, it's been a, a couple weeks since we've spoken. You know. I think there's been a couple indictments <laughs> since we've spoken to some degree uh, as well. You add this, uh, the civil case on as well, which we know has been ongoing. When you talk to folks inside the campaign right now, when they're looking at kind of the political atmosphere and dynamics going forward, um, what stands out to them? What do they view as the biggest issues they might have? Well, I think, I think their main thing is that there are all of these cases. And so the biggest issue for the presidential campaign from a campaigning perspective is how do we get through all of these cases and also run our 2024 presidential run. It's almost impossible. And, you know, this, this case alone, he sat for seven hours one day. That takes you off the trail for an entire day. Now, the thing that works in Trump's favor that aides have noted to me throughout this whole process is he was already the president. And so he does have a much more limited campaign schedule compared to the other candidates. But is not a huge problem. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but on the flip side... That's where the other candidates see their opportunity. I mean, all of these other candidates are literally living in Iowa at this yep. point, essentially. And that's where they see their, their opportunity. And so if things start to get close as we head into the Iowa caucuses and Trump decides, well, I actually do want to be on the ground more, that's going to be a major problem if he's also dealing with two or three active trials. Yeah, that actually, <laughs> I, I want to just sort of quickly get to you, um, Ellie. 
Um, when you look at what the judge has said in the D.C. case, one of the top five um, most important <laughs> cases, um, she has been very clear that she doesn't care about the political campaign. She says what is important is that case. Is that each and every judge? Is that what we're going to sort of see here? No, I think every judge is going to have to pick his or her spots here. But it's clear to me Judge Chutkin in D.C. intends to try this case before the election. Absolutely. She set the date for March. May slide a little bit. But count on seeing that before the election. Okay. You know, just one of the things, this got lost yesterday. We were all very focused on covering the hurricane uh, for the absolute right reasons. But uh, a couple days ago, the former president did an interview with Glenn Beck. And he said something uh, that I think may have gotten lost. I want to take a listen to it. You said in, in 2016 you know, uh, lock her up. And then when you became president, you said, we don't do that in America. That's just not the right thing to do. That's what they're doing. Do you regret not locking her up? And if you're president again, will you lock people up? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, The answer is you have no choice because they're doing it to us. I always had such great respect for the office of the president, the presidency. I never hit Biden as hard as I could have. You know, it fits into, and Shelby and I have talked about this before, it fits into a very clear campaign push on their side, right? Victimization, the weaponization of the Justice Department. But the idea of a president or presidential candidate and a former president saying, we're going to lock people up when we get into office. Do you think people should take that seriously? It's interesting because this chant, lock her up, has, you know, it was popularized under Trump and right. his supporters. And when you're out there, when I'm out there covering arraignments and uh, all of these indictments, <clears throat> you're hearing that spun on its back. From and people pe- who oppose Trump. Right. From people who oppose Trump saying lock him up. Um, so it's just a bit ironic. But, you know, one thing that the Biden administration has said as he's been in office has been to separate, you know, there's this real effort to separate himself from what's happening at the Justice Department. Um, and so in that bit, I haven't listened to that full interview, but in that bit of sound that we heard from Trump um, suggesting that he wouldn't separate himself from the Justice Department and that it would be politicized is, you know, it's concerning. Things that Trump says, it's not like he's just talking to talk. I mean, he is he really gives you a blunt look inside of what, you know, inside his head and what he is really thinking. Um, So, I mean, not great. (laughs) <laughs> that, that is a good way to put it. Um, Shelby, I just want to just quickly lastly ask you um, whether you think this is going to be revenge politics at its most extreme. Um, if Donald Trump were to get into the presidency or as he is working towards that, do you think this is going to turn into just a revenge tour once uh, as he as he goes along the trail? Well, I think he's as you just said, he's publicly alluded. It's not it's not like he he's known for subtlety. Yeah. Keeping <laughs> secrets. He says what. He, he intends to do. Yeah. Um, and so so I think by that measure, he does want some sort of revenge. And and also he's using all of these cases, as we've talked about a lot, to sort of bring people to his side and to get people to say, yeah, listen, the DOJ is politicized and and this is a political effort against me. And so that's, again, part of how he intends to try to win the presidency. Yeah. Um, was that a Mad Men reference? The not great Bob line <laughs> I picked up there? A little bit of that? I like that. that was, I like that. It's that coming to the regular public discourse. Though. Yeah, no, but I appreciate its origins it, yeah. and your use of it. <laughs> Thanks, guys. We Thank appreciate it as appreciate always. It. Thank you.
Well, before the summer, you probably didn't know who he was. Now, he has the number one song in the country. And because it's this country, politicians have tried to weaponize it or put him on their side or the other side. Who knows? Ahead, we're going to meet Oliver Anthony. I'm going to write, produce, and distribute authentic music that represents people and not politics. A surprise hit song has been resonating with millions of Americans, but it's also been embraced by politicians. It turns out on both sides of the aisle, singer Oliver Anthony's anthem, Rich Men North of Richmond, even took center stage at last week's Republican presidential primary debate. Anthony says the song was written about people on that stage, and he hates to see it weaponized. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich looks at how the song shot to number one. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay. In the woods of rural Virginia, Oliver Anthony sings about what he knows. And millions of Americans now know him too. A lot's changed since the last time I sat here and spoke to you. He has the number one song in the country. He was also featured at the Republican debate. Candidates were asked why they think it's resonating. It was funny seeing it at the presidential debate. Because it's like, I wrote that song about those people. Politicians are trying to claim him as a Democrat or Republican. I'm going to write, produce, and distribute authentic music that represents people and not politics. The people from all walks of life are relating to what he has to say. I like that. A lot of people gonna relate to that. The lyrics are awesome. Lydia, What's I, this I, guy's got, name? I got goosebumps too. His real name is Christopher Anthony Lunsford. His friends call him Chris. He lives here in the woods of Farmville, Virginia, with his family, just over an hour west of Richmond. He struggled with money, alcohol, depression, and sings about it all. He's everywhere, but nowhere at the same time. I think that his lifestyle and what he wanted to do and like live off the grid and, you know, live in the country, I think, I mean, that's, that's what he wants to do. On a random Wednesday evening, he sang in town at North Street Press Club. He wanted it to be so everybody here locally could come out and see him. Oliver Anthony says he's turned down $8 million deals since he shot to number one. He seems like a pretty down-to-earth individual, and this town is one town that's going to protect that if they can. What do you think about what he's saying and why people are resonating from all over? I think there's still a huge swath of people in the middle who just feel a little disenfranchised with the wealth disparity. Having somebody come out and sort of advocate or voice that frustration, it's not surprising to me that it resonates. How do you know Christopher? Uh, he's my neighbor. Anthony DeMarco has lived next door to Oliver Anthony for five years. We still live on a dirt road. He's now his merchandise guy. He's just a guy that smiles a lot. Just a fun guy to be around. He says what everybody is feeling for the most part. We don't have a voice to say it to the rich men north of Richmond. And now we do. And just two weeks ago, Oliver Anthony was writing music, 
singing, recording it on his cell phone in his backyard. Now he is number one on the Billboard charts. This is a guy, though, that doesn't want to do interviews. He wants to talk about who he is and what his music means on his own social media. He did do one podcast, just yesterday came out uh, with Joe Rogan, and talked about how he says the controversy around him about the two political sides trying to make him their own. He says he thinks it's funny because that wasn't the point of the music. He says he's going to do just one more podcast. We don't know which one that is yet. But really a guy who just wants to write music for the people. And he's going to do it still in the woods of Virginia. That was a really interesting piece. I'm so glad you did it. Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thanks so much. Well, a new report out this morning that top Republican donors are asking Senator Tim Scott's campaign for more information about why the presidential candidate isn't married. Odd question. What's behind those concerns? Next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. With Florida Governor Ron DeSantis struggling presidential campaign and Donald Trump's ongoing legal troubles, Axios is reporting that some top GOP donors are strongly eyeing Senator Tim Scott's candidacy, but they do have some concerns over at least one aspect of his life. With more on this, we're joined by Axios national political reporter Alex Thompson. Thank you so much for being here. The issue that uh, you have written about is whether or not Tim Scott is married and why he isn't married. Tell us more about it. Yeah, Tim Scott is 57 years old and he's never been married. And I can tell you that behind the scenes, donors have been concerned. You know, a lot of them really like Tim Scott. They like his upbeat message. They see him as a potential Trump alternative, but they are worried that, you know, with the scrutiny that comes at if he becomes the ultimate Trump alternative, is there something about his personal life that's going to, you know, make him less electable in the general election? Um, you know, Tim Scott has said that he is dating somebody, but has so far decided to keep her private away from the scrutiny of a presidential campaign. But the fact of the matter is that America has not elected a bachelor president since back in the 1800s. And uh, other other presidential candidates have run while single. Cory Booker did while dating uh, actress Rosario Dawson in 2020. Senator Bob Carey in 1992 uh, was a divorcee but decided not to date on the campaign trail because he thought it would be a distraction. The fact of the matter is that donors, before they are telling uh, the the Tim Scott campaign, both uh, privately, um, that you know they want to invest in his campaign, but they have questions and have been frustrated by what they consider some of the vague answers. Now, I can tell you that Tim Scott's campaign, a senior advisor, told me that Tim Scott hears these concerns and says that he's going to be addressing the topic much more in uh, the coming weeks. Alex, that was a line that, that kind of stood out to me because my initial reaction was, man, donors come up with like the the most random things to be nervous, frustrated, anxious yeah. about when it comes uh, to their political choices. But the idea that not only does Scott campaign hear it, but that he's going to be addressing it publicly. What's your sense of what that may actually mean and, and why? Clearly, they think it's resonating to some degree. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Tim Scott's campaign, you have to remember, Tim Scott, first of all, has really prioritized the first state of Iowa, which has a strong evangelical uh, Christian presence, you know, and you've seen a lot of the other candidates, particularly Ron DeSantis, really trot out his family on the trail, bringing his young kids, his wife. And I think they, you know, they recognize that 
people often elect people that have big families. Now, obviously, uh, Iowa, uh, you know, elected and reelected Donald Trump, who's you know thrice married. But I think um, you know Tim Scott's campaign recognizes that people just want answers. People want to know, hey, you know, why are you 57 and you haven't been married? Not that it's a bad thing. We just want to know a little bit more about your story. Tim Scott has also tried to spin this originally as sort of a positive thing. Hey, I have more time. I can put more of my energy into the job. But clearly, the Tim Scott camp, the, the Scott campaign recognizes that people just want to know a little bit more about this. Yeah, but there is a lot more Americans who are single now than than ever before. Um, a point Scott's made. Right. Yeah. So uh, it is an interesting quest- question, but maybe not top of mind for every voter out there. I do want to quickly ask you about Ron DeSantis, uh, not in the presidential campaign way, but in uh, the governor. He he is in Florida. He has been having uh, daily updates on what's going on with the storm there. How might that impact how people see him as his campaign struggles? Well, I can tell you, Ron DeSantis' campaign sees what he's doing now in Florida, really aligning, honestly, with the campaign, which is he has set him, you know, presented himself as Trump without the drama, Trump with competence, someone that does not get distracted by news of the day that will sort of, you know, even though there are bigger cultural issues at play at the end of the day, someone that will try to make government work. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think the, the DeSantis campaign has really tried to to actually promote the work that he is doing in that uh, that he is not campaigning, that he is fully focused on this storm. So it's one of those things where they they see, you know, in their minds, good policy being good politics. All right, Alex Thompson of Axios, appreciate you sharing with, uh, your reporting with us, man. Thanks. Thanks. Well, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell freezing up again at a microphone. It's the second time in just weeks, prompting more concerns about his health. We have new reporting on what McConnell has been doing behind the scenes. Stay with us. Good Thursday morning, everyone. Poppy is off this week. Sarah Seidner is back with us after taking a brief tour down to Florida to cover the hurricane yesterday. And we are going to be covering that again today. Neighborhoods have been changed forever by Hurricane Idalia. It is now a tropical storm off the Carolina shores, but officials are already assessing the damage in Florida and Georgia. We're going to be talking to the FEMA administrator about the latest on the ground in just a moment. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell freezes up in front of reporters again. It is the second time this disturbing scene has played out this summer. We have new reporting now about what McConnell's been doing behind the scenes. And the Department of Health and Human Services is recommending that the DEA significantly ease restrictions on marijuana. Now, it is currently a Schedule One drug, the same level of LSD and heroin. Though the potential reclassification wouldn't legalize marijuana federally, Could it be a step in that direction? We're going to explore this hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, good morning, everyone. And we are going to start with what Sarah was covering yesterday on the ground. Hurricane Idalia, now tropical storm. Idalia cutting a devastating path of destruction across parts of the southeast. It's moving slowly north, now along the Carolina coast, weaker but still bringing heavy rain, flash floods, and tornado threats to the Carolinas. Georgia uh, Georgia and the Carolinas are seeing serious flooding, especially in those coastal areas, water levels in Charleston, rising to near record levels. Now, the National Weather Service says the storm surge reached nine feet in some areas. Now, while it is losing strength, it's still bringing that heavy rain, flash flooding, and tornado threats through its current path. Wow. Look at this video. This is from Goose Creek in South Carolina. 
The car went airborne, you see there, as a tornado plowed through and flipped it on its side before striking another vehicle. The driver of that car was taken to the hospital, but amazingly, only with minor injuries. This is all coming as communities in Florida are assessing the damage Idalia left in its wake. Crystal River, where I was reporting from yesterday morning, is just one of the many communities dealing with the aftermath of the devastating storm surge. One official saying the city was decimated. And we want to get right to FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell. She's on the ground in Florida, so she's planning to tour some of the damage from the storm with Governor Ron DeSantis later today. Uh, Administrator, thank you for your time. I know you're very busy. I want to start with what you're seeing right now. I think everybody knows recovery has started. All the assets, state, local, and federal, uh, are in play and at work. What are you seeing in terms of scale right now? Uh, good morning. I, I did get on the ground yesterday afternoon and I was able to, or yesterday evening actually, and I was able to get a quick update from my team that's here. You know, and what we're hearing right now is that in those coastal communities, uh, especially along the Big Bend, that there has been a significant amount of damage in there. And that's exactly uh, why I'm here is to be able to get on the ground with the governor, go assess for myself what the impact is and to see, you know, what additional resources or funding might be needed to help support the recovery effort. Uh, I am also hearing, though, that uh, people did heed the warning to evacuate and the primary searches, I believe, are complete and they expect the secondary searches in those areas to be done by Friday, um, which is really great news that people got out of harm's way as this storm surge had the potential to be uh, truly life-threatening. Let me ask you, ma'am, you know, yesterday you were talking about how big this storm was, the biggest that, that really um, the Big Bend area has seen in more than 100 years. What is the challenge right now? I noticed as I was leaving the state yesterday that there were a lot of electric trucks that were coming in to try, uh, coming towards the damaged areas uh, to try and restore power. What are some of the things that are really causing, wreaking havoc at this, at this time? Yeah, I think the biggest concern um, right now is always power, right? That there's a good percentage of those communities along the coast that are still without power. Um, but Florida Power and Light, they have brought in mutual aid resources. I think it was 30 to 40,000 linemen that were going to come in and support um, the restoration of the power. And we also have the Army Corps of Engineers uh, on standby to go in and assist in, in supporting generation generator installs as needed to make sure we can get power to those critical facilities. And so today, you know, the focus is to make sure that we've uh, accounted for everybody and there's nobody still stranded in any of these communities and begin to start to restore that power. The next part of this will be to start removing the debris, right, and making sure that we can have access into those communities. Those are going to be some of the priorities today. I'm going to meet with the state director and the governor shortly after this, and I'll get a better idea of what their priorities are and if there's something that the federal government can do to support those. You know, to that point, Administrator, we learned just moments ago that the, the president has approved a, uh, an emergency declaration for South Carolina. I think he's been very quick to act on those in natural disasters that we've seen over the course of his presidency. But to that point, there are questions, not in the near term, but longer term, in terms of your funding, in terms of having the resources you need going forward. In fact, the president was asked about it yesterday. This is what he said. Americans that the federal government is going to have the emergency funding that they need to get through this hurricane season? The answer is, if I can't do that, I'm going to point out why. How can we not respond? My God, how can we not respond to these needs? 
And so I'm confident, even though there's a lot of talk from some of our friends up on the Hill about the cost, we got to do it. This is the United States of America. Administrator, we kind of go through this every single year at this point where there's questions about emergency supplemental funding, what will or won't get through a lot of teeth gnashing, and then it eventually gets done. The president was not unequivocal there. He, he, he said there was a possibility or seemed to allude to a possibility uh, that it wouldn't get done. Where, where are your, where's your head at on that, and how much do you think you may need? Yeah, so the Disaster Relief Fund, we've been monitoring the health of that um, for several months now, and we have been projecting a deficit within our Disaster Relief Fund, the primary fund that supports the response and recovery to these events. Um, and we've been projecting that deficit to come sometime in September. And so on um, today's uh, Monday, I believe, or maybe it was Tuesday, uh, we recognized the need to go into immediate needs funding. And that means that we are going to prioritize the remaining funding that's within the Disaster Relief Relief Fund to go uh, to life-saving activities. This is a practice that we have used in the past. We've used it eight times. The last time was in 2017, and it allows us to make sure that we can have all funding available to support those life-saving activities. Um, I want to emphasize, though, that the work on recovery doesn't stop. It just delays the obligations until the DRF is either replenished or into the next fiscal year. You know, it's really disturbing to think about um, FEMA not having the money it needs because also insurance companies have stopped writing insurance policies for homes in Florida. There are a dozen insurance companies. So without that, without the help of FEMA during a disaster, which we're seeing more and more and more again, um, it really puts people in a really bad place. Yeah, and that's why you've seen the preparation leading into and the response coming out of and a focus of the Biden administration. FEMA Administrator Dan Criswell, we appreciate your time. We know you're very busy. Thank you. All right. This is just into CNN. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is working behind the scenes to reassure his allies and donors that he can still do his job after he appeared to freeze once again during a press conference yesterday. Senator, you're up for election in three short years. What are your thoughts on that? I'm sorry, I had a hard time hearing you. That's okay. What are your thoughts on running for re-election in 2026? What are my thoughts about what? Running for re-election in 2026. Oh. Sure. Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. Vinny. Wow, that's hard to watch. All right. McConnell's health has drawn increased attention since his fall in Helsinki in February. Since then, he's had at least two more falls and difficulty hearing reporters' questions. McConnell has also suffered a freezing episode while speaking to reporters at the Capitol just last month. His office says he feels fine, but is going to consult a physician. I seem to remember that same thing being said in the last time that he froze up there. They said it's a prudential measure that he goes to see a physician. CNN's Melanie Zanona is joining us now. There really is a big question here um, as to whether Senate, Senate um, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will actually run for re-election. Um, what are you hearing? 
Well, it's very clear that McConnell and his team recognize that this is a ballooning political problem for the Republican leader. And in fact, they have taken steps behind the scenes to try to tamp down speculation about his political future. We're told that McConnell has been calling up some of his closest allies to reassure them about his fitness to lead. He's also been reaching out to donors to try to reassure them as well, according to my colleague Manu Raju. He also made it a point to attend a fundraiser last night for Congressman Jim Banks, who's running for Senate. And people who were with him yesterday have come out and said he was totally fine and totally sharp yesterday, even after that scary freezing moment. I want us to take a listen to what Scott Jennings, a longtime McConnell confidant, told you guys a little bit ago. He came back home to Louisville. I was with him with Jim Banks, who's running for Senate in Indiana. He met with a group, answered questions, worked the crowd uh, and was, you know, on top of it, sharp and fully in command of, uh, you know, all the all the politics and issues of the day. So and I, and I should also tell you, I, I was with him two days ago and watched him give a long speech to a lunch crowd and then answer several questions from that crowd and uh, in the midst of another long day. So throughout the month of August, uh, he has kept up a pretty robust schedule. Of course, that is really encouraging news to hear. But at the same time, we still don't know what caused these episodes. His office has still not said what the issue was, even though he was supposed to seek a doctor yesterday. They've been very reluctant to share details about his health. And so questions about his future and his fitness to serve likely only going to intensify, especially as the Senate returns after their August recess next week, guys. Yeah, so much of the concern, Mel, tied to the uncertainty of what's actually going on here. It's why Scott coming on and kind of walking through his personal experience was actually helpful uh, in illuminating. But also yesterday, where Scott was with Leader McConnell, was at a fundraiser for uh, a Senate candidate, kind of a top-tier Senate candidate in Indiana, which underscores kind of his grip and role inside the conference that he leads. Is there any sense right now that closer than his actual re-election, he's going to have to run for leader again if he stays around? Uh, that Republicans inside the Senate Republican conference uh, would think about moving with somebody different. Yeah, well, as of right now, Republicans are standing by McConnell. He previously said that he intends to serve out the rest of his term as GOP leader, which goes until the end of next year. And Republicans right now are supporting him in doing that. But I think it's an entirely different question about whether he runs for leader again and whether he would have the support to do so. And remember, the last time he run, ran for leader, he actually faced his biggest challenge yet as my, as leader. He's also drawn the ire, of course, of Trump world. And so I think there are a lot of questions about whether he would run again. Phil and Sarah. It's really interesting. Thank you. We'll be watching to see how this develops. Melanie Zanona there uh, for us live. Well, as Rudy Giuliani stares down criminal charges in the Georgia election interference case, he just lost a defamation lawsuit from two election workers in that state mentioned in the indictment. How much it could cost him. That's next. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Welcome back. A federal judge has found Ruby Giuliani liable for defaming two Georgia election workers. Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shea Moss, sued Giuliani for accusing them of fraud during the 2020 presidential election. They say his accusations put them through, quote, a living nightmare. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. All because a group of people, starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay. 
CNN's Caitlin Polance joins us now. And Caitlin, I think what was striking in the judge's opinion, 57 pages, was just how unsparing it was uh, and the action it actually took. What did you see? Yeah, it is extremely unsparing. The judge is essentially saying to Rudy Giuliani that there are consequences for how he has responded to this lawsuit by not providing the evidence requested, uh, and that he is now uh, conceding that he made these defamatory statements about these two women in Georgia, trying to accuse them of swapping ballots or interfering with the vote counting, which just was not true. And so he's losing uh, the facts of the lawsuit, essentially. He's not going to go any further than that. The judge has ruled against him. And now what happens next is a determination of how much money Rudy Giuliani will owe. This is how the lawyer for Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss summed it up last night uh, with Caitlin Collins here on CNN. Here's what his assessment is of what Giuliani uh, is going to be uh, going to trial on and potentially could have to pay. But, you know, our expectation is that we'll be able to prove tens of millions of dollars in compensatory damages before you get to punitive damages. So we expect it to be a significant uh, damages case that we'll present to the jury, and we're confident in our ability to document and demonstrate it. Tens of millions? Yep, you heard me correctly. So what that lawyer, Michael Gottlieb, is talking about is compensatory damages. That's to make Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss whole. That's what he's going to be asking for as a lawyer. The judge also in this case is saying, yes, Rudy Giuliani will be looked, will, they'll have to determine how much he has to pay for the defamation, for the emotional distress he inflicted upon these two women with his words after the 2020 election. And then on top of that, there will be punitive damages, punishment for Giuliani to deter other people for doing something like this, something, Phil, that could amount to a staggering finding. We don't know what that finding will be yet, though, because there will be a trial over how much Rudy Giuliani will have to pay now that he has lost uh, the facts of this case. That trial will take place later next year or at the beginning of, uh, later this year, excuse me, or at the beginning of next year. And it's a trial that everyone should be watching. Caitlin, report, Polance, great reporting as always. Thank you. All right, let's bring in our panel politics reporter for Semaphore, Shelby Talcott, CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. I took your other title away. Sorry, Ellie. And national political reporter for the Associated Press, Michelle Price. Thank you all for being here. I, I want to start with this to remind people what was said and why this suit came forward. First of all, after Rudy Giuliani said this, people came after these two women threatening their lives. Listen. Of Ruby Freeman and Shay Freeman Moss and one other gentleman, quite obviously, surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. I mean, it's, it's, it's obvious to anyone who's a criminal investigator or prosecutor, they are engaged in surreptitious illegal activity again that day. And that's a week ago, and they're still walking around Georgia lying. Should have been, they should have been, uh, should have been questioned already. Uh, their places of work, their homes should have been searched. It turns out they were not lying. He was lying and admitted that he did not tell the truth. What the hell has happened to Rudy Giuliani? Oh, I, that I cannot answer. I mean, the man has had such a, a remarkable downward spiral. It, it's really horrifying to see. Um, he was once a respected prosecutor. Now here he is lying about these women, destroying their lives, and now he's being held accountable. I think it's really interesting what the judge did here. What the judge's ruling yesterday essentially was, was, I'm done with you. This is what we call a default judgment, meaning the judge said, you have violated the rules, the evidence, 
the procedures here so badly that I'm calling it. It's over. It's like if in a football game a referee said, one side, you've committed so many penalties, you've cheated so bad, I'm calling it, it's over, you forfeit, you lose. That is really rare. And it goes to Rudy Giuliani's just loss of all ethics, of all moral compass, of anything he may have learned as a lawyer. He was once a very good lawyer, and now he's long gone. You know, Caitlin Polans put it great when she was talking about this uh, last hour. Words have consequences. And I think why that matters and why it is so important, one, for this to be moving the way it is, but also for people to remember these two women, to remember their public testimony, and to remember what people like Giuliani, but also the former president in the, the kind of famous, infamous Georgia call with Brad Raffensperger talks about them specifically right. to election officials uh, in similarly both demeaning and false ways, um, is that you know, when you, you can dismiss any number of things, things seem too amorphous given how many cases, how many indictments, all that type of stuff. This is real. This is humanity. This, these are people. Do you think that resonates with people, or does it just get lost? Yeah, I mean, if it, that the January 6th committee, their testimony, outside of everything that happened on January 6th, this was one of those really moving parts of that testimony. You know, uh, Shea Moss talked about uh, Trump supporters showed up at her grandmother's house and actually forced their way into her home. I mean, they talked about the real impacts on their lives from these claims when their names were out there, used by Rudy Giuliani and by President Trump, out there on the Internet. Uh, you know, as far as accountability, talking about how far Rudy Giuliani has come, uh, there's a question about whether he has the money to pay anything right. here. I mean, Donald Trump is actually scheduled to headline a fundraiser for him at his golf club, uh, I think, a week from tonight. Uh, you know, he's not paying his legal bills, but he's offering to show up and make some remarks on his behalf. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss are not just victims in this case, but they're really heroes. I mean, they didn't ask for this, right? It's one thing to me if Rudy Giuliani or Donald Trump goes after someone who puts themselves in the public eye, someone who runs for office, someone who goes on TV like us. That's fine. But these are private citizens who did their civic duty. They were vote counting and doing it fairly and honestly. And to be accused of being outright criminals is outrageous. And now Rudy's facing consequences. Well, also being accused, let's not like kind of try and tiptoe around this. The racially loaded yes, terminology sure. that was right. used repeatedly Drug is not dealers, subtle. Right, sure. And it's not like they can act like that wasn't what, like, stop. Yep. Like everyone knows what you're trying to say. Um, Shelby, you're talk- talking to every campaign all the time right now. I think what's interesting in terms of where the Trump campaign is, where the whole kind of legal apparatus is right now. Michelle mentioned the fundraiser the former president's going to hold. But Giuliani's involved in so many different pieces of this, and they can cross-cut to some degree with testimony, with stipulations. Yeah, and I think that's the big takeaway that I have with this Giuliani situation, um, is that what he says in one case, when you're involved in multiple cases, which it's not just Giuliani involved in multiple cases, right? Obviously, Trump has four or five depending on which ones we're counting. But when you say one thing in one case, it could end up affecting your other cases. And so these these defendants who are involved in multiple cases have to be very careful about what they say, how they defend themselves, the evidence they produce, because as we're seeing, it could come back to affect them down the line in, in you know, unrelated cases that are only you know, conceptually Related. Which was part of the reason Meadows taking the stand was so interesting the other day. By the way, the, the, the attacks on Ms. Moss and Ms. Freeman are part of the Fulton County DA's yeah, right. indictment as it's well. part of the indictment. Yeah. Um, also, <laughs> there are actually several other people that are indicted uh, for targeting them as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so let, I want to I want to move on to uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, what we saw yesterday, which is really really disturbing, but uh, there is a of course a political component. It's not just a human component. There's a big political component. I want to let you uh, see what the Lexington Herald Leader uh, put. Uh, in its um, editorial, it, very blunt here. It says, one of the most important politicians in the country, they argue, and certainly one of the most important politicians to the state of Kentucky, needs to tell his constituents what is going on with his health and whether it truly impairs his ability to serve them. That is a newspaper from his home state. What do you make of this? I'm, I'm going to start here um, with you. What do you make of this, Michelle, when you hear something like that from his home state, home paper? I mean, it shows his staff and, and Senator McConnell, they need to answer some questions about this. They have really just not explained what's been going on here. Uh, with the first incident, I think they said he was dehydrated. Now they're saying at least he's going to go to a doctor. Maybe there'll be some answers there. But there are huge political implications, not just in Kentucky. Um, you know, if he doesn't run again, I think it's striking that this, this freeze happened during a question about will he run right. for re-election. Um, but there are people like uh, Representative James Comer, who serves in Kentucky, might be somebody who would want to run if that... A uh, seat becomes available. That could very much change the power dynamic there. Um, but it comes at a time when we see Republicans raising the issue of Joe Biden's age. They try to make uh, allusions to his mental competency. You if, don't hear that on the other side. You do not hear them going after McConnell the same way they go after Biden, who hasn't had these spells in, in, pub, in the public eye. Right. So it's a, that's going to be much harder for them to make that argument when you have these very public freeze-ups from McConnell. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I, they'll still make the argument. <laughs> yep, they will. <laughs> and there's a lot of Republicans who don't like Mitch McConnell. He's just an absolute kind of central power figure within the party and certainly within the chamber. Ellie, Shelby, Michelle, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Well, Tropical Storm Idalia is moving off the coast of the U.S., but it left major flooding and devastation in several states. We'll talk to the Pasco County Fire Chief about the rescues he and his team have been making over the last 24 hours. That's next. Stay with us. We are waiting for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who will give another Idalia update around 9.15 this morning as Florida continues to recover. And Idalia is a tropical storm still moving through parts of the country. We will bring that to you as soon as he takes the podium. That update will come as that destructive shore continues to move offshore through the Carolinas. Idalia hitting the Carolinas overnight, leaving hundreds of thousands of residents in the dark across the region. The powerful Category 3 hurricane hit Florida and left historic storm surges up and down Florida's west coast. In Pasco County, officials say 6,000 people were inundated with water. And some homes burned, including this one, in flames amidst the floodwaters. Pasco Fire Rescue carried out 85 rescues, saving at least 150 people ranging in age from just nine days old all the way to 90 years old. And joining us now is the chief of the Pasco County Fire and Rescue, Chief Tony Perez. Uh, Chief, thanks so much for taking the time. I assume you are quite busy right now still as the recovery continues. Uh, what's the situation on the ground right now? What have you guys seen now that the storm has moved away? Well, good morning and thank you for having us here on, on the CNN. So right now, as we, uh, we start to transition into the second phase of this operation, we're, we're going to have crews out there. We're going to do another assessment and just to see if there's anything we can do on our end. Um, yesterday afternoon, roughly about three o'clock, we demobilized all of our assets and we handed the operation over to the sheriff's department and they worked in conjunction with the local electric company to start getting the power back on. And they were doing their routine exterior inspections of the homes that were damaged. 
to ensure that it was going to be safe to be able to, you know, be able to turn the power back on. So right now we would do our second phase this morning and we'll have a, a much better understanding of where we need to go as far as from the fire rescue aspect of it. Chief, can you give us a sense, uh, Chief Perez, give us a sense of what it was like being there? Um, I know that you and your staff have to be there. You are the emergency responders, the first ones often out the door. Can you give us a, an idea of what you went through as the storm passed over? Yes. Yeah, so first, I will always give credit to the men and women of Pasco County Fire Rescue. They worked throughout the night, throughout the day, and they would not stop working until everyone was accounted for so this operation started roughly about one o'clock Wednesday morning. There were two areas that we were really focusing on due to the flooding. So we had units staged with boats ready to respond in case of emergency. About 3.30, we received, started to receive some calls of some people starting to receive the floodwaters and were calling for help. We. We had the units dispatched into those areas to start doing rescue uh, missions. But right around 6 a.m. is when it really started to intensify. We received multiple, multiple 911 calls of people asking for help and to be rescued. And that's when the operation really started to evolve and get more intense. So our command staff here at headquarters transitioned up to those two locations. And we were able to establish a unified command with 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 Pasco County Sheriff's offices to help facilitate these rescues. There were a total of 85 rescue missions as you stated, but we ended up recovering 150 or helping remove 150 families out of that location. So we were truly, truly there to, uh, to provide a service, but it was, you know, it, the, the flooding, all the war, it was, it was, um, it was disappointing and sad to see uh, some of the people's belongings, the homes were destroyed due to this storm. And it wasn't even a category four. We didn't we did not receive a direct hit. Right. We, we received a lot of a lot of flooding and it could have been a lot worse. But thank thank God we were able to do our job and, and help the citizens and the community of Pasco County. You know, Chief, I understand you're still in the early stages. Do you have a sense of how long it's going to take for kind of full recovery normalcy in the community? We don't know. Not until we get out there today and we do a good, thorough assessment. Now that we're not doing not now now that we're not in a rescue operation, mm -hmm. we'll be able to kind of um, really, really get detailed and really get in depth of what needs to be done. And I'll have a much better idea along with the staff um, after after this morning. Chief Paris, thank you, and thank you to all the men and women there of the Pasco County Fire and Rescue. Uh, I am sure all those 150 families, their family members are really, really thankful that you were there and that you took care of them. Uh, even after everybody was told to evacuate, uh, you know, you yes. have to do your job and you did it. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Now, just ahead. It is a big shift coming in federal drug policy when it comes to marijuana, potentially. What an official with the Department of Health and Human Services is recommending when it comes to how marijuana is classified. Dr. Sanjay Gupta back again to explain next. And this is new overnight, a devastating fire in South Africa. At least 73 people were killed after that fire ripped through a building in Johannesburg. The fire is now out and emergency services are conducting recovery operations. Officials say 
It took place in a, quote, hijacked building. That is what they call a building overtaken by hundreds of people who are homeless. All right. A senior U.S. health official is calling on the Department of Drug Enforcement Administration to ease restrictions on marijuana. A health and human services official sent a letter to the DEA asking the agency to reclassify the drug as a lower risk substance, according to a person familiar with the matter. Right now, marijuana is considered a Schedule I controlled substance, a classification used only for the most dangerous substances. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joining us again this morning. Um, Sanjay, what else do you know about this request to the DEA? Well, so first of all, you know, any drug that has a potential for abuse, it can be scheduled and it's into one of five categories. So schedule one all the way through schedule five. Uh, And let me just show you here what schedule one means. This is where cannabis is placed. Basically, no current accepted medicinal use and high potential for abuse. Other examples would be heroin, LSD, and ecstasy. What we know is that in October of last year, the White House basically asked HHS to review cannabis and see, look, where does this fit in? Are there uh, accepted medical uses? Should it be rescheduled? HHS has now basically sent a letter to the DEA, as you point out. Rachel Levine, who's the Assistant Secretary at HHS, sent a letter to Ann Milgram at the DEA saying, hey, look into rescheduling this to specifically Schedule 3. And let me just show you what that means. Schedule 3 basically saying there is currently accepted medical use and there is less potential for abuse than substances in Schedules 1 or 2. Examples, they want it to be more scheduled along the lines of Tylenol with codeine, buprenorphine, ketamine, and anabolic steroids. That is the, that, that's basically what the letter says. Um, this, is, this has been something that's gone back and forth for a long time. A lot of people say, hey, look, how do you place cannabis, something that has uh, you know, increased evidence of medicinal use, into the same category as LSD? And I think that's, that's kind of what's driving this. You know, you know Sanjay, first off, this is a very kind of tried and true bureaucratic uh, process that we're seeing that's both politically and policy intentional. But what happens if the DA actually does this? Well, you know, there's there's several things. As a Schedule One substance, it is that that's not a legal thing necessarily, but it does make it very difficult for people who are trying to use cannabis for medicine as a medicine to get a hold of it. There's still this very uneven legal evolution. Several states have uh, allowed it medicinally, but it's still Schedule One at the federal level, so it's very confusing. I think one of the biggest things, frankly, is that you want more evidence of its medicinal benefit. But at the same time, because it is Schedule One, it is tough to to get the the cannabis and actually study it in a way that that's beneficial and provides that evidence. One of the only farms for a long time in the United States was actually in the middle of Ole Miss, the college campus. It was the federally funded sort of source of cannabis for all research for a long time in this country. It's challenging to get the data you want if you only have one source. There's more sources now. But, but that's, that's the biggest thing, I think, medically. You want to be able to do the research to provide the evidence. You need the evidence to reschedule. You can see the, the challenges there. You know, um, my colleague here, Phil, likes to... I know you're wondering where am I going with this. I know. I know you are. It's good. Keep you on your toes. Okay. Uh, He likes to get in the weeds when it comes to Uh. these things. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. But I do... (laughs) He likes to get into the weeds of issues. But I do want to ask you about descheduling versus rescheduling. 
What exactly does that mean? Because health officials could have asked the DEA to say, hey, deschedule this, correct? They could have, absolutely. And this is a common debate as well. As you know, I've been reporting on this for more than a decade. I think here's the thing. In order to deschedule it, you'd basically have to say there is no potential for abuse here. And I think that's going to be a high bar. I mean, I don't, I think most people would agree who study this that it shouldn't be a Schedule 1, but the idea that it has no potential for abuse is probably a pretty high bar. You know, one thing I find very interesting is that if you look at alcohol and tobacco, and, you, and again, go back to Schedule 1, no accepted medicinal benefit, high potential for abuse, those are substances you could see being on there even more so than, than cannabis. Yeah, I, I don't know. You can count on one hand the number of reporters who have done as much reporting on this issue That's as Dr. Sanjay Gupta um, is still doing reporting, still uh, putting out docs on the issue. We appreciate your expertise. I apologize for the bad puns, but you can feel there is a palpable sense of pride emanating from Sarah Seidner right now I'm feeling good about for myself. that pun. Sanjay, I'm very sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Sanjay. <laughs> Well, Amazon CEO warning workers to get on board with the company's return to office plan or their days may be numbered. Harry Inton is here, hopefully not dancing yet with this morning's nope, number. You started it. All right, this, we were dancing because of this. The sky a little bit brighter last night because of a blue super. Look at that, that's real. It doesn't look real. Check out this time-lapse a video of what it looks like over Jerusalem. A supermoon is a moon that appears to be much bigger and brighter than a regular full moon because its orbital path is much closer to Earth. And when there are two full moons in a calendar month, it is known as a blue moon, not because of the color. It's rare, hence the phrase once in a blue moon. I didn't know that. I didn't actually. Thank you, Carolyn and writers, for sharing that knowledge with me. If you missed it last night, don't you worry. You can see the supermoon again right here on TV or tonight <laughs> into tomorrow morning. We'll be right back. Oh, I appreciate you, Sarah Seidner. <laughs> Amazon CEO delivering a warning to employees. The warning, get on board with the company's return to office plan or, quote, it's probably not going to work out for you. CNN has confirmed Andy Jassy made those remarks after Insider first reported it. The company is pressuring U.S. office staff to return to the office at least three days a week. That brings us to CNN senior data reporter who comes to work every he single day. He's literally always in the office. Literally Six days seven days. Oh, well, I Six. thought it was seven, but anyway. Maybe seven days off. Slack. Yeah. Harry Anton's here. Um, what is this morning's number? All right. This morning's number is. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Minus 0.2% because that's the average quarterly growth in labor productivity since the beginning of 2021. It's actually down. We've actually seen a decrease in productivity. That is tied for the lowest in the last 75 years. And what's so fascinating about this, though, is if you ask workers whether or not uh, remote work affects their productivity, in fact, the plurality say it helps. It helps. And then you see this 42% who say no impact, just 9% say it hurts. But I think the head of Amazon is looking at, hey, labor productivity is down. We got to get people back into the office. But the people who are actually working saying, no, it helps or it has no impact at all. So we sort of have these cross currents that are going on there. Yeah, I'm firmly in the 9% category, but I also have four young children at home. How, how many people, this was, there's so many columns written that like, this is the new thing. This will be forever. How many people are actually still doing remote work right now? Yeah, in terms of, Remote work only. So this does not include hybrid, but look at 
Very few people are actually remote work early only. Look at that. In 2019, it was just 4%. Wow. It jumped up to a majority 54%. But we've seen this decrease, decrease, decrease. Now it's just 15% who are remote work only. And I'll note that the majority of people are actually at work full time. Near 60% of workers are at work full time. But of course, this remote work only differs across industries. So if you're a blue collar worker, you know, if you're manufacturing or hospitality, very few percentage are re remote work only right. versus those in finance and biz services. You can see here about a quarter are remote work only. So it really does differ across industries. It makes sense because you can use your computer at some of yeah. these jobs and other jobs need your manual labor to get it done. Yeah. Um, I am firmly in the camp of I'm not choosing um, because I'm <laughs> going to upset whoever if I say but one thing or the other. the swinging back in tech is the most yeah, interesting that's big. by far. It is. And that's really fascinating. As always, my friend. Thank, thank you, my so friend. Thank you so much. But we do also want to show you this sea of red in Nebraska. That's not a football game. That's 90,000 people. Yes. University of Nebraska there to see the school's women's volleyball team. The record was broken last night. We'll have more next. Hey, did you know that I played volleyball for the Florida Gators? Anyway, uh, imagine calling shotgun and losing to this thing, this massive thing, a bull. How far this Nebraska driver got with a bull in his passenger seat, that, that's a real Bull, I cannot wait to see this story. Next. Wait, you play foot you played volleyball? Yeah, volleyball. For the Gators? For the Gators. Way cooler than the bull. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> this story is so cool. The University of Nebraska is wild about women's volleyball, and that was never more evident than Wednesday night. Look at the sea of red in Memorial Stadium. Ninety-two thousand and three fans to be exact, all on hand to watch the Cornhuskers. Take on in-state rival Omaha. That's a new world record for any women's sporting event. I was thinking this morning, there's only three things that shut down the University of Nebraska. One, snowstorms. Two, COVID. Three, Nebraska volleyball in the stadium. Amazing. And the team didn't disappoint. The home crowd, five-time national champions. They are really good at this. Their fourth win in a row. Shout out to Jeff Zeleny, a resident Nebraska alum. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, good for him. Um, I do have to mention just again that I played volleyball Florida? for the Florida Gators. Just, and in 1992, you did cool. see a picture. 1992, we were That's the awesome. first team to make it to the Final Four. Come on, bring it. All right. Now... We can stop talking about me no, and we can move on. You know the TLC No Scrubs lyric hanging out the passenger side of his best friend's ride? Why do you have to ride? read the script for that lyric? You should just know that. <laughs> Why are you so, so disappointed that? Wow. in you? That was shade. Anyway, uh, that was kind of the case in Nebraska. Big day in Nebraska. <laughs> this video shows a real, authentic, live bull riding shotgun in a car on an interstate in Norfolk, Norfolk, Wednesday. And this was no pickup truck. It was just a regular old sedan. You know what? There's an ad for that sedan. That is one tough car. Surprisingly, the bull actually fit in there. I don't even know how that's possible. Police, though, did pull the driver over. He was given a warning and told, take that animal back home, sir. Uh, Oh, this is oh, this is the end. Sorry. Also, shout out to Jeff Zeleny, our Nebraska <laughs> resident. Um, um, I love that story. It's not so a stuffed good. animal. It's amazing, and I could talk about it all day. But we're going to toss it over to CNN News Central because they have a lot of news. They do. See you tomorrow.
That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.